0: Let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to your scriptures. We pray that you would open them to us. We do make that song the cry of our hearts. Come, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak through my words. Come and fill our hearts and minds. Come and lead us to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Two things, one, I feel like I'm in this tree back here, so I'm gonna adjust just a little bit. Uh, and then a couple of you, if you're like so far up that you're hurting your neck looking at that screen, there are seats in the back if you need to move back. You may be fine where you are, or you may go, you know what, thank you, Chris. <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> I feel like I feel like they're getting ready for Christmas, so everything has shifted up just a little bit. They've added a few chairs in this week, so um, each week we have a few more people, and they trickle in and out, and so if you're back for the first time today, welcome. If you're back for the first time in a long time, because you've been to school or been wherever, just welcome. So glad you're here, and so glad you're with us. Um, most of us are, we're pretty familiar, I think, uh, with the songs of Christmas As a culture, uh, there's a pretty good familiarity because you hear the songs on the radio and you hear them in Christmas uh, productions, right, in schools and in just about every store you walk into, starting on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. We're a culture that's sort of inundated with songs for Christmas, whether they're secular songs like, you know, Frosty or Jingle Bells or. Santa Claus coming to town, or the Christmas carols like Silent Night or Oh Little Town of Bethlehem, things like that. Most of us at least know the tunes and probably a few of the words. Um, Let's see if we can try a couple. I'll need your help today. See if you can finish these lines of Christmas songs. He's making a list, he's checking it twice. That's not good theology necessarily, but that's okay. Um, He already knows we're all naughty, and we need his nicest anyway. We won't get into the theology of the songs. How about this one? Dashing through the snow. That's good. Stop there. The last service, they tried the next line, and it murmured out as we got further and further along. Uh, I'll do this one. I can't carry the tune very well, but you'll know it. Silent night. We're going to sing that in a few weeks, and it's going to be beautiful because we're going to do it by candlelight, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and bless us in ways that are truly wonderful. Uh, we'll do one more. How about, we three kings. That's good. We'll stop there. How so far? We'll stop. Well done. You see what I mean? You, you get it. Now, a lot of you are, are kind of church, so you know you might know those last couple, and we're all culturally acknowledged uh, culturally acclimated to the, to the secular songs, um, the Bible has a lot of singing in it around Christmas time, and there are songs that celebrate the birth of Jesus that are perhaps less familiar to many of us than what we hear on the radio. And all of those songs are found in the first and second chapters of the Gospel of Luke, which is really helpful for us because we've spent the whole year in Luke. We might as well finish the year out strong, right, and finish it up uh, going back to the beginning of the book, if you will. Today we're going to be looking at the Song of Zechariah. Last week we looked at Mary's song, this week we have the Song of Zechariah. Let me give you a little bit of background before we dive into the text here in Luke chapter 1. For centuries, the church has called this song the Benedictus. Everybody say, Benedictus. Benedictus. It's Latin for blessed, which is the first word of the song. Uh, You hear it in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And it's a song that's absolutely packed, full of Old Testament references, particularly to the Psalms and the prophets, and especially to the prophet Malachi. Everybody say Malachi. Malachi. The reason I do that is I don't want you to get confused when you read the book and you go oh, it's the prophet Malachi. Right. That's that's a different guy, I think. Now, if you don't remember, Malachi, not Malachi Trey, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament and he is the last prophet to speak before there's 400 years of silence from God. And that's a really long time. Just to put it in perspective, that's really about twice as long as our country has been in existence, roughly. And the book of Malachi and the Old Testament itself does not end with the words, and they lived happily ever after. It doesn't even end with the words, the end. That's more like what you get in the end of the New Testament the book of Revelation, and they live happily ever after. Um, At the end of Malachi, you get a promise from God that he will act again on behalf of his people, and that before that day comes, God's going to send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah, like the great prophet Elijah, who's going to prepare the way for God's arrival on the earth. So a a little bit uh, of more backstory here. Um, Zachariah's song is, in essence, this kind of bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a transition point, and, and it's very thoroughly Old Testament, uh, in its theology. And so it doesn't see everything that we'll get in the full picture that the Gospels give us, but it's a, it's a setup, if you will. It's a bridge. It's a connector from what was given in the Old and what is coming in the New. And it's Zechariah's way of just absolutely flat out. It's it's a praise song basically. It's delirious in its joy and its praise. Basically, Zechariah saying it's finally happening. The time is here. What God promised is happening, and we're going to unpack that in just a little bit. I have to keep giving some backstory though. Um, it's it's basically about God. That's the big theme. It's about this God who is faithful. Everybody say he's faithful. faithful. And so it's this praise of the God who is faithful to his people Israel. That's the main theme. There's a secondary kind of smaller theme, which I'll call the that's my boy section of the song, where Zechariah is pointing to his son who is the forerunner for the Messiah. And we'll touch on that, but we'll we'll stay mostly focused on, on the big stuff, this God who's been faithful to the nation. Now, last bit of, of backstory, right? You got to know who Zechariah is or it doesn't all make sense. Zechariah is a priest and um, he is an old guy. And not only is he an old guy, but his wife is barren. She's old, but she's probably been barren most of her life. You, you know that because she's, been, she's labeled that. Like she carries a label in her life, the one who's barren. And so what's amazing about this song of Zechariah, the priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, is that, that this song of praise erupts out of a man who's a doubter. Everybody say, Zach's a doubter. <laughs> now we want to keep that in mind right? Even though an angel of God appeared to him and told him this baby's going to come in a miraculous way and you're going to name him John, he doubts. And so for the nine months of his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy, he cannot speak until the day in which he names the child John to fulfill what the angel told him to do. And that's when he gets his voice back. And that's when this song of prophecy, praise, pours out of him to the Lord. Okay, there's our backstory. It's a big setup, but it's very important. Let's look at the text. The first thing, God is faithful to his people. I think you see it in three basic movements. And they're this, God visits. Everybody say, God visits. God, visits. God keeps his promises. And God saves. Uh, we'll take them one at a time. God visits. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then later in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So on the sort of ends, the beginning and the end of this song, you have the God who visits his people. God who enters in. He's not part of the creation. He's outside of the creation, but God comes near. God is a God who engages. And the Greek for that word has a root that means he visits personally. He visits personally. But it's not like, hey, I'm gonna drop by your place today for you know, a casual chat while we sit on the porch, socially distanced, and then I'm gonna take off. It, it's not that kind of superficial or, or you know, simple kind of visit. The idea of visiting in this, old, this New Testament word is the idea of seeing somebody who is in distress, who's in misery, who's in the midst of heartache, and intervening personally in order to help relieve their misery. So I think um, we, if, if you've ever had someone whom you love die, and someone shows up with a casserole And you can't eat it because, like, who can eat in those kind of situations? But they don't just bring the casserole and a card. They don't have any answers necessarily, but they just sit with you in the middle of your misery, and somehow it lifts it up, right? We, We get that. That's the kind of idea of this word, visit. God enters into the misery. God enters into the mess. God enters into this world, not for a casual visit, not just to show up to see, hey, what's happening, but because he wants to enter in personally to bring relief and blessing to those who are in misery. That's good, isn't it? Absolutely. That's what it means that God visits, and that's what God has done. He's personally come into the misery of the world. He comes into the misery of our lives to provide a solution, to bring a blessing in place of that which is trying to destroy or seeking to steal away life. He comes into the lives of those who know their desperate need for him. And Zechariah is blown away. He's blown away by this notion and this, this truth that God comes, that God comes near, God enters in. It's startling, it's overwhelming. And he praises God for it because he's the God who visits. Second, he's the God who keeps his promises. And that's really a whole bunch of this psalm. There's a lot of verses. Verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke. In other words, just like he said he would, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72 says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. A holy covenant is a promise made, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now, let's think about that long period of silence, those 400 years after the speaking of the book of Malachi, of this last prophet of God, there's this incredible silence. And you got to think that there is a question on the hearts and in the minds and on the lips of God's faithful people, right? They're constantly oppressed over those 400 years. Like like they're in a place in in the world where everybody's got to go through Israel to get to other places to conquer. So they're constantly getting smashed. The question is, will God do what he said? Will it come through for Israel? Will God keep his promise? The prophets spoke about a Messiah, a king and a deliverer who would come from heaven. He would vanquish evil and sin and death. He would be born of a virgin, born in the city of David in Bethlehem. They spoke about him calling him a ruler forever a wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting father and the prince of peace Malachi calls him the son of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4 but can't you imagine somewhere around year 300 or year 20 or year 399 people wondering what if the prophets were wrong what if it wasn't true? What if God's words can't be trusted? Maybe it was all made up. Maybe it was just wishful thinking. There's this long, dreadful silence. Silence is something that many of us try to avoid at all costs, because what happens in silence is the stuff comes up, the stuff that we carry in our hearts and in our lives, the real stuff that we generally try to keep other people from seeing, the insecurities and the fears and the anxieties and our own mortality and the eternal questions and our own lack of control over our lives. In silence, stuff has a habit and a tendency of bubbling up. That's why we fill our lives with so much noise. With music and television and constantly thumbing on our phones and social media, busyness. We add people, we add activities. We even get into bad relationships because, you know, at least I'm not alone. And when it comes to the silence of God, when God is quiet, that quiet and that silence can be almost deafening. It can be overwhelming, almost maddening. Now, there are very few Christians who have written about that silence of God as well as C.S. Lewis. There are many who have written about it, but, but he is up there with the best of them. If you don't know his story, he was a man who... Um, fell in love late in life and got married to a woman named named Joy. And um, not too long after they were married, she got cancer. And it was a hard cancer and it was a kind of a long battle. And um, then she died. And Lewis, after her death, journaled about his experience of walking through his grief. And Right before the end of his life they, they took those notes, his journals, and they made them into a book called A Grief Observed. And and what he wrote about so poignantly in there is not just the grief, but about the silence of God. Listen to what he wrote. No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness. On the rebound, one passes into tears and pathos, maudlin tears. I almost prefer the moments of agony. These are at least clean and honest. Meanwhile, where is God? When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms." But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Now think for a moment about the people of Israel waiting 400 years in silence generation after generation after generation. It's no wonder that so many of them stopped expecting God to move. And they were so shocked when God arrived on the scene because they had generations of people saying, well, who knows? Now, the really good news and C.S. Lewis gets to this later in his book, is that the silence of God is seldom permanent. He wrote these words, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. I was like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. What's God doing in the silence and in the waiting? In the silence, God is preparing God is adjusting. God is getting things ready. And so it was in the silence over those many years, and so it is in the silences that we experience along the way. He's preparing us, and he's preparing the world around us. Zachariah's song declares the preparation is over. God's entering in. The silence is ending. It's all happening in real time. What he said through the prophets and what he said to David and what he said to Abraham, what he said in the covenant, it's all true and it's all happening. God keeps his promises. And that means God can be trusted and God's word is faithful and it can be relied upon. So God visits and God keeps his promises. And the third thing that he celebrates is that God saves. Right? Zechariah points to what the coming of Christ is all about. God saves people. He's so interested in you and me knowing and experiencing his salvation that he did the really obvious. When his son was born and he gave him a name, he gave him a name Jesus, which means God saves. Like, just in case you guys miss it, I'm going to call myself God saves. (laughs) Now, the way Zechariah says it is like this. Verse 68, God has come and redeemed his people. He's come to buy us back from slavery. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's a stable place, a strong place, a high place where we can be saved. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness all our days. Those first enemies are the outside enemies. The second enemies are the internal enemies that keep us in fear of God, running away from God, rather than serving God in holiness and in righteousness. He takes away the shame and the fear and the sin, the enemy of our soul that would keep us from knowing the kind, good heart of our God. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people through the forgiveness of their sins and to guide our feet into the pathway of peace, which doesn't mean that everything's always smooth sailing. It means that we can walk with him in peace. We can walk with him in assurance and in rest every day of our life and all throughout eternity. This is the salvation that he brings. And Zechariah is telling us that that God, he's shown up to do it. God has shown up to give it. He's not just here to see how we're doing. He's come to save us. That is what Christmas is all about. So that's the big theme of Zechariah's song in these three movements. God is a God who redeems his people. God is a God who visits. God keeps his promises and God saves. And that minor theme, right? That's my boy section, right? That's verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, there's the proud daddy moment, right? He's got his boy in his arms, right? And he's just crazy about him. He's marveling that he will be the prophet like Elijah who will prepare the way, who will help God's people turn back to God and open their lives to him so that they're ready for the Messiah who comes to save the world. He's just named the boy, He's named him in obedience to what the angel told him to name him, and he names him John, which means God's grace. Now, here's what's so beautiful. The doubtful servant of God, who's been in this season of silence, but has held there with the Lord, is now experiencing God's grace. You see the picture? And that's good news, For me, and maybe for you too. Because what I observe about my own life is that sometimes I'm super faithful, and other times I get a little half-hearted. And sometimes I'm full bore for the Lord, and other times doubts creep in. And I won't call it unbelief so much as that nagging stuff. Like I got the big stuff. It's that everyday kind of unbelief that creeps in. Do you know what I mean? Okay, well, I I get like that. The good news is that God did not sideline Zechariah in the midst of his doubts. Oh, he put him in a season of silence, but he didn't cut him out of the story of salvation. He didn't move on. The silence was not a punishment. The silence was a preparation to help him get to the Lord to help him be ready himself when Messiah came, to help him be prepared to serve his role and his part in the salvation plan of God. And that's helpful to me because it tells me God's not done with me on the days I blow it or miss it or fall into that sin again or kind of slink away from the Lord. Oh, not for days or months, but maybe for hours, sometimes days, I suppose, And that means he won't do that with you either. I think that's good news. So if you're in a place like Zechariah where the doubts have been creeping in, well, why not spend some time in this psalm and restore in your heart through the word of God the reality that God is a God who visits, not just then, but he'll come again, and he still visits us by the Holy Spirit. And God is a God who keeps his promises, and God is a God who saves. Now, if you're in a place of silence and waiting, here's what I encourage you to do. Go back to the words that God has given you in your life the promises that he made you, perhaps a long time ago, you've written them down, they're in your Bible, they're highlighted, they're scribbled, they're actually hidden on your heart probably. And steep yourself in those words and bring the confusion and bring the silence to him and let him meet you in it. Because whatever is stirring up is not stirring up to punish you or harm you. It's stirring up so that you might see him in a new way in the midst of silence so that you might mature, so that you might be prepared, so that you might be ready for what God has for you next in this life. The silence won't last forever. Stay with the Lord. Now, if you're just in a place of delirious joy, because remember I said this is a delirious song of joy, because you're just flat out giddy about Christmas this year, because man, what a year. Let's party. Right? And every time you see the lights and every time you look at your tree and whenever you see maybe your kids or your grandkids or there's just something inside of you that's bubbling up, rejoice and let it out and share it with others. You're going to have to do it through your eyes because they can't see your mouth this year. And share that good news and let it spill over. Rejoice. Rejoice. God has not forgotten you. God delights in you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, come and meet us today wherever we find ourselves. Whether we find ourselves in a place of doubt or a place of silence or a place of rejoicing. We thank you for the words of Zechariah. We thank you for the bridge from the old to the new. We thank you that we live on this side where we can see him clearly. Jesus, God saves, Emmanuel, God with us. And we pray, O oh God, that you would make us bearers of this good news to the people around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.